This is the O'Reilly Bots Podcast. I'm John Bruner. So, Bot Day was a couple of weeks ago. Listen to our previous episode for a rundown and reflection on Bot Day. And a lot of you have asked about what's coming up next. At the moment, our plan is to present a bot program at the next O'Reilly AI conference. That's returning to New York in June of 2017. You might remember that I presented some interviews from the O'Reilly AI conference this year in this podcast a few weeks ago. So we see AI and bots as closely related. You can think of bots as kind of interfaces for AI that allow humans to interact with computers in human terms. There's a lot of overlap. And if you're interested in talking about bots or talking about areas of AI and machine learning that are related to bots, especially natural language understanding, you should apply through the O'Reilly AI Conference Call for Proposals. The call is opening up in a couple of weeks, and we'll be sure to mention it on this podcast. We're also planning to keep this podcast going, because not only are we having a lot of fun with it, but also we've heard from a lot of you that you enjoy hearing discussions about bots and hearing from people who are doing really interesting work with bots. We're also going to broaden this podcast out just a little bit and talk a bit more about AI and data and some other topics that are useful or perhaps just interesting to the kinds of people who are interested in bots or building bots. There's a lot to explore here. Today's episode is one of those sort of enrichment discussions. It's not immediately related to bots, but I'm sure you'll find it interesting, especially as we approach the U.S. election. My guest today is Andrew Terrio. He's the chief data officer for the city of Boston and was the director of data science for the Democratic National Committee from 2014 to 2016. Andrew is the author of a free O'Reilly report called Data and Democracy, How Political Data Science is Shaping the 2016 Elections. Data and Democracy is available on O'Reilly.com now. Just check the show notes attached to this episode for a link. Welcome, Andrew. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, John. Thanks for having me. So let's talk a little bit about how data is changing or not changing, perhaps, uh, campaigns. I think everyone who listens to this show realizes that the kinds of tools and, and methods that are available to data scientists have become vastly more sophisticated in just the last 10 years or so. So has that changed uh, the, the fundamental nature of campaigning? Absolutely. Uh, especially what it really relates to is the way that campaigns work on the ground. Uh, there's obviously been you know a lot of attention paid to television advertising, digital advertising. Uh, those are always a big part of the campaigns, digital more and more every year. Uh, but one of the really understated parts of campaigns is the on-the-ground, door-to-door work that campaigns do. So, you know, when a volunteer or campaign staffer uh, knocks on your door, calls your phone, sends you a piece of mail, those are things that we've done forever. You know, those have always been traditional parts of campaigning. And even as the cost of campaigns has exploded, you know, those have stayed pretty similar to, to how they were in scale sure. even, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago. But what's changed about those is really how those are targeted. You know, mm -hmm. it used to be that you would target based on some general characteristics, whether it's geography, you know, this is a neighborhood that we want to hit, or demographics. Uh, we want to hit, you know, women or young people and so forth. But where we've gotten to today is a place where almost all voter contact is targeted based on individual characteristics. So the main starting point for all of this is a voter file. Mm -hmm. uh, on both sides, we have, we have voter files that are collected by merging data from across the different states and counties throughout the country. Those get put together in standardized databases, and then campaigns and, and parties will make models based on that, predicting everything from you know, what party you're likely to affiliate with and whether you're likely to turn out, all the way down to how do you feel about gun control, 
Mm-hmm. Are you likely to vote early? You know, all sorts of things. And so campaigns can use those things to customize who they reach and what messages they use when they reach them. I'm curious about the the data sources for those kinds of models. Uh, you mentioned, you know, voter registration rolls uh, mm-hmm. are a huge part of it. Are there other kinds of, uh, you know, data sources, maybe digital data sources that have to do with preferences and outlooks and things like that? Or are these models just really built completely on the voter registration data? Well, the starting point is voter registration data. But once that's put together, and, and that's no small task, you know, these voter registrations are managed at the state or county level, depending on the state. Mm-hmm. And just getting those standardized in a central database is a, a huge amount of work on its own. But once it gets there, that's where the real fun begins, bringing in new data sources. So some of those might include, um, you know, your, your standard consumer files that, that any company might purchase. And I think a lot of data scientists are familiar with where you learn about things like consumer buying habits, you know, whether mm-hmm. somebody might be a dog owner or mm-hmm. they might play golf. You know, those kind of things get appended to voter files all the time. Those get a lot of attention. They're actually probably less important than, than many of the other sources and certainly less important than a lot of the hype would say. What really matters a lot is bringing in things like census data. So, for example, mm. you know, knowing uh, things about the racial and ethnic patterns in a neighborhood, uh, being able to, you know, speak to what the, the demographic distribution of voters in a particular area are, that can tell you a lot about what kind of neighborhood it is and, and you know, whether the people who live there are likely to be your supporters or not. Uh, we also bring in things like campaign contact history. That's mm-hmm. a really, really important one, especially on the Democratic side. Uh, when the media talks about the Democratic Party's data advantage, you know, they're always asking whether the Republicans are going to catch up this year or next year or, or when that's going to happen. And I think the real big asset is not so much in the technical knowledge and expertise. Uh, that's something that there's a, a long established history of, but it's also something that people can catch up with within a cycle. Mm-hmm. What can't be replicated, though, is that the Democratic Party has been collecting data on voter contacts for, for over a decade now and collecting that in a shared resource so that when a, you know, your average state Senate campaign is going to knock on a door in mm-hmm. 2016, they can know if that person back in 2008 said they were a supporter of Barack Obama. And obviously that doesn't translate to every Democratic state Senate campaign, but it's a really good place to start, especially when you're talking about states where, say, you don't have a partisan registration on the voter file. You know, when you do, you at least have a starting point for people who've declared themselves as Democrats or Republicans. But in states that don't have that or where people have registered as as independents or no party Mm -hmm. preference, having those field IDs is a, a hugely important thing. And over the past decade or so, the Democratic Party has managed to put together uh, records of voter contacts with something like 10 to 20 percent of the electorate. Wow. And so that really gives an edge in being able to target, you know, your potential supporters and, and also at the same time, you know, knowing who's not on your side. You know, if you know that somebody was a, a hardcore McCain or a Romney supporter, or, you know, for some down ballot Republican candidate as well, you know, they're, mo- they're more likely than not probably not going to support Democrats in other offices. So they're probably less of an appealing target than say somebody who you know reported themselves to be undecided or or has voted for you know one in one race and and one in the other right because, you're dealing with limited resources absolutely and and obviously you know how somebody actually votes is is confidential but how they report themselves as likely to vote to a campaign that's something the democratic side has been really good at taking advantage of and making sure that you know that knowledge that's reported to an individual campaign isn't wasted once that campaign's over that's something mm. that we're able to make use of year after year and and use that to build a better understanding of the electorate and, and make sure that we're talking to, you know, the right people, making sure our message is getting out to the people that we want it to reach. 
You've mentioned that this is a big advantage for the Democratic side. Is is this a kind of uh, database that the Republican side has not uh, been able to build? This is something the Republican side has been working on. Uh, it seems like every election cycle for the, for the past two or three presidential elections and, and even in between in the midterms. And so they've had some issues just coming to terms on, you know, what their long-term solution is. Mm-hmm. They, they seem to be getting closer to it. Um, but in this cycle, there's, real te- there's been a real tension between the, the RNC, the official Republican Party uh, side of things, and the, the platform being pushed by the Koch brothers and other interest groups. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so, you know, as a consequence of that, by not getting uh, campaigns to, to deliberately pick one or the other to use, it's really hampering the efforts to build up that long-term institutional knowledge. I think they've gotten better at it this year. You know, after this election, I imagine eventually they'll get there and standardize on a single platform. Uh, I think what's really made the difference there is that, you know, the Democratic Party, when they've done it, they haven't only just provided the voter file, they've also provided tools on top of that file for campaigns to use and, and things like uh, predictive models so that for individual voters, campaigns can immediately gain access to information that they wouldn't otherwise have. So that provides a real incentive for campaigns to buy in and keep feeding information back in that system. Eventually, the Republican side is going to, to get on board with that and settle on one tool or another. And when they do, they'll start building up something similar. Andrew, I think uh, a lot of this makes a great deal of sense in the context of uh, this, this great summary that you had in the very beginning of the report, uh, where you point out that, that fundamentally campaigning is about two different things. Um, who is going to turn out to vote and for whom will they vote? And everything basically sort of comes down to that, right? Absolutely. So I think that's kind of a familiar idea to a lot of um, data scientists. It's about sort of, you know, two dependent variables and um, where you're going to put your resources into moving things, right? Right. Absolutely. I mean, in economic terms, you know, we might think of it in terms of whether somebody's likely to buy something and how much they're willing to pay for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, ultimately, it comes down to an optimization problem, which is, right. is really similar to the business side of it. Yeah. So it sounds familiar. How does, uh, you know, political data science differ for, perhaps from uh, commercial data science? Sure. Well, I think part of it is is technical and part of it is more about the environment. So on the technical side, I think there are a lot of constraints that we, we work under on the political side that don't necessarily extend to business. One of them, I think the most obvious probably is the election itself, mm-hmm. that everything happens on a very strict time frame. You know, just because your product isn't ready, um, in this case, the product being something for a campaign, mm-hmm. you know, that's not going to push back the election. You can always push back a launch date on a product or, you know, do, go for a soft rollout. But at the end of the day, in the, when it comes to a campaign, you have to have the work done by the time it's needed or it's not worth a thing. Hmm. And, and certainly, you know, for me, I came from an academic background. So there was a real culture shock uh, going mm-hmm. from, mm-hmm. you know, one case where, I mean, the last project I worked on before I left academia was, was a dissertation. And that's something where you have, you know, a three or four or five year time frame. You just work on one thing and you get it just perfectly right. But mm-hmm. on the political side of things, you know, really you, you have to learn how to compromise. And so as a, a, a data scientist, it's, a, it's sort of fine art. Figure out, you know, at what point something is good enough to put out there so you can move on to the next thing and, and make sure that that product is being useful to the world. So there's some mix of, I think, things that are, you know, typical for, for people in industry doing that where, you know, you might launch with an initial version, which is the, the MVP, the minimum viable right. product, where you provide something that is better than, you know, the status quo of nothing. Mm-hmm. And then you iterate from there. That certainly happens, um, particularly at a place like the DNC, where we had a team working, you know, all throughout 2015. Uh, but when you get into an election year, you're really, you know, in that fast paced 
time where you have to make decisions about, I can make this model better, but is it worth doing? You know, mm. Or should I just get it out there, move on to the next thing and free up my time so I can provide some other resource? In terms of culture, I think you know a lot of the differences stem from there as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I think when we're talking about elections, we're talking about a lot of very passionate, committed people all working towards the same end goal. And so what it does, it creates a, a you know, almost like, uh, it, it feels kind of silly to say, but almost like a military mentality in that sense mm-hmm, of, mm-hmm. you know, if you've worked in politics, you've been in the trenches, uh, obviously right. less physical danger, but, you know, <laughs> at the same sense, you've been doing something with the people around you that the people who haven't worked in that can't understand, really. You've you know, stayed up, you've eaten the pizza, you've lived on the airplanes, all of that. Yeah, you know, you've been writing code at 4.30 in the morning and then back on a conference call at 8.30. Right, uh, right. You know, I've spent a great deal of time doing that. And and that's something where some people in the startup world understand that, obviously. Um, but thinking about it, you know, as not just, oh, I'm doing this because I want to make the next, you know, Twitter or Spotify or, or whatever and make a ton of money. You know, in this case, it's we're doing it because we're trying to save the world. And, and there's definitely mm-hmm. that that thought process where, look, if you're going to going to put your life into politics, uh, you, you know, you've got to kind of have a bit of a, a sort of, you know, a God complex in a way where you right, feel like right. whether or not I do my job is really going to impact the future of the world. I mean, otherwise, why would you work 60, 70, 80 hours a week for, you know, lousy pay and, and, and mediocre benefits when you could be taking those skills and applying them in a, on, on the private sector, you know, for twice the pay and, and a much better standard of living? Right, right. I think the corporate world is starting to sort of come around to this MVP mentality and, you know, build it and experiment and iterate and so on. Is there a culture clash in the political world uh, with that mentality and that approach? Well, I think in part what's different is actually uh, it's less about the the influence of that agile kind of approach to things and more about the the data-driven culture more generally. You know, that's mm-hmm. a war that on the Democratic side, we, we fought and, and, you know, at the end of the day, the, the data people won. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the campaign culture pretty broadly on the Democratic side, has come around to understanding that data can do things that the old ways of doing things, which relied on, you know, experience and instinct, just can't get at. Mm-hmm. And it's not that we are finding some magic insights. I think what, what I often explain to people is, you know, if, some, if a model tells you something that makes no sense to you, I would, I would be skeptical of the model. Mm-hmm. You know, what the model is really good for is telling you how to take all these things that kind of make sense to you and figure out how to combine them. You know, so if you, for example, you know, know that somebody is, uh, say, a higher educated Latino living in a rural area, mm-hmm. you know, those are those are different characteristics that might point in, in different directions. But figuring out how to combine those and say, OK, well, given all those facts, you know, how is somebody likely to vote? Well, well, that's a hard thing for instinct to, to rationalize, but that's a straightforward thing for a model. Right, because right. You look at, at people with those various characteristics and combinations and you come up with an estimate of what that, you know, what that means. And I think campaigns have really found, oh, wait, this is useful. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't want to just know who our strongest supporters are, who our, our, our strongest opponents are and who's in the middle. You know, I want to know with much more precision, is this, is this person, you know, a, a 60 or a 70 or an 80 on our, our Democratic Party support score? Mm-hmm. You know, those things m- matter because it tells you what you can expect to find when you go up to the door. You know, when you when you call on the phone or, or even when you ask for a donation, it can give you a, a much more nuanced sense of what to expect out of somebody that you haven't previously had contact with. Speaking of data driven, the appearance to the consumers, if you will, to the voters is that everything is vastly more data driven. And now we have, you know, this relatively new uh, genre of political reporting that is the election forecasting. There's a chapter of your report that's about election forecasting sites like 538 
they've been around since 2008. So this is the third election cycle now that we've had 538 on compared to, you know, conventional polling, where we used to just see kind of which candidate is up by how much across, you know, states or, or across the country. We're now seeing a probabilistic approach to this, like the the probability that Clinton or Trump will win the election. It's a much bigger divide. Uh, do you see signs that that this election forecasting is actually changing the way that uh, that campaigns work or that voters see the campaigns? For sure. And that's a, a great chapter. It's written by Natalie Jackson, who runs the, the pollster section of the Huffington Post. Mm-hmm. And they do a great job at saying, OK, we have this flood of polls coming in, you know, all, all of which say something slightly or in some cases very different from one another. And so especially in a media landscape where, you know, people will pick and choose polls depending on what suits their interest at that moment. These polling aggregators and these forecasting sites like like 538 and like the, the Daily Coast site and others, mm-hmm. you know, they do a great job of saying, all right, how do we break down all these different data points into something that we can actually get some information out of? Because the polling industry is really in a crisis right now. I think it's worth, mm. worth mentioning that the, the model that, say, Gallup developed decades ago, you know, that's just not working as well as it used to. I think one thing that consumers of polls don't really understand is how much survey response rates have plummeted over the past couple decades. And and that's, you know, there are a few things that can be attributed to things like caller ID and mm-hmm. cell phones mm-hmm. and just the fact that, you know, there's so much crap phone calling that's being <laughs> done out there that people don't want to talk to pollsters. Right. It used to be, I mean, 30 years ago, you know, if somebody got a call from a pollster, they felt special uh-huh. because that wasn't something that typically happened and they were being asked for their opinion by a total stranger, and that was great. But now, especially if you live in Iowa or New Hampshire, I mean, you try getting somebody on the phone in New Hampshire uh, in, in an election year, and it's damn near impossible, even if you're friends with them, hmm. because nobody even looks at their phone anymore because the pollsters keep calling and calling and calling. Especially, I mean, the real, I, I would say the real culprit in that is, the, is automated polling. Mm-hmm. You know, all mm-hmm. these uh, interactive voice response or IVR polls, uh, they make it stupidly simple to try to poll somebody. And the problem with that is it means it's just people's phones are ringing all the time. So what that's done, and, and the Pew Research Center has put out some great data on this, looking at response rates over time. You know, it's gone from, from it used to be, you might get a 50% response rate in a poll 30 or 40 years ago. Mm-hmm. 20 years ago, it was about, you know, 20, 25%. I mean, every election cycle, it just has come down and down and down, you know, going down to 10%, 8%. You know, when we were running campaign polls uh, back when I was with the DNC or, or with the survey firm I, I was with before that, you know, we're lucky if we would get 5%. That would mm-hmm. be that would be mm-hmm. a good result. 20 years ago, somebody would have said this poll is crap and we should just sh- throw it out the door. But surveys uh, done over the phone, they're just not what they used to be. And so it really emphasizes the importance of aggregators because mm-hmm. somebody who's a, a casual consumer might look and say, okay, well, there's, you know, the, the 3 or 4% margin of error on this poll. So that tells you how close it is to being right. And, and that's just not the case. That's a, you know, that's a reflection of just pure sampling error, assuming everything else in the poll is absolutely right. And, right. and you know, the secret there is no poll is ever exactly right. Nobody knows what's the best way to do a likely voter model or, or word your survey questions or any of these things with absolute precision. So there are all these other sources of error in polls, ways that the, the result can be pushed one way or another that just aren't being accounted for in margins of error. So that's why it's more important now than ever to, to look at polls in the aggregate and look at these forecast sites to really have a better sense of what's going on. Hmm. 
Plus, this leads to an interesting question that's been discussed uh, quite a lot in this election cycle. Is it possible to move the polling process into uh, you know, a digital venue and do some of it online or reach people in ways where, where they're more easily reached? And of course, we, we've seen plenty of you know, dubious uh, online polls in the last few months. Absolutely. And, and you know, there's for every good poll, uh, I'm sure there are a dozen awful, awful ones out there. And, you know, you can't expect your average casual consumer of, of this information to know the difference. But that's why it's important for sites to be able to put some kind of filter on there and say, you know, we can we can see which uh, which polling firms like like YouGov or SurveyMonkey mm-hmm. are the really reputable ones trying to do online polling right, mm-hmm. which means, you know, they're introducing methodologies to try to counter some of the difficulties of doing online polling where, you know, you do have some subsection of the electorate that isn't representative of everybody. The premise of, of online polling, generally they're referred to as, as non-probability samples. You know, we've kind of given up on this idea that you're going to take the entire population and then call some random subset. I mean, that went out the door, you know, around the time people stopped answering landlines. Uh, and, and so now, you know, every poll is to some degree a non-probability sample. But I think online pollsters just are, are more honest about recognizing the fact that they're not covering the whole electorate, which mm-hmm. means they need to try harder to make sure that the people they do get to participate are reflective of the broader population. So you have companies like SurveyMonkey uh, trying out innovative methods. Uh, they do a lot of polling that is about nothing related to politics. They'll mm-hmm. do things like you know employee surveys or customer satisfaction surveys, and at the end they'll ask their you know they'll ask the survey takers, hey, by the way we you be willing to answer two or three more questions about the election? And mm-hmm. that's a way that they're able to bring in a lot of people who might not on their own sign up to take a survey uh, about politics. But, you know, once they're already in there, they'll say, sure, what's two or three more questions? Right. And so these kind of novel ways of getting a better sample of people online, I think we really need to appreciate those because ultimately, you know, that's the direction polling is going, uh, whether we like it or not. The old days of, you know, the, the gold standard pol- phone polls they're not coming back anytime soon. And so things like these online polls, they're going to be part of the equation and, and more so in years to come. So uh, campaign managers, like their counterparts among sort of private sector marketers, have also become very sophisticated about and, and very sensitive to uh, sentiment in social media. Could you ever see a, a time when social media and kind of analyzing uh, you know, patterns and sentiment there could inform campaigns in the way that polls do? Or is that strictly a matter of kind of managing the, you know, the, the messaging and the marketing process? Oh, that's absolutely something uh, campaigns are, are really interested in. Actually, when I was at the DNC, we, were, we, were, we started off looking at people who were interacting with the different social media accounts that were run out of the DNC. So obviously the Democrats' Twitter account, but also things like, uh, you know, the various party officials' accounts. Mm-hmm. We were looking at who was interacting with those and, you know, how they were responding to things and what was getting traction, what wasn't. But the next step beyond there is thinking, can this be a, a tool to understand public opinion more broadly? And obviously, the big challenge there is, you know, you think an online survey is a, a non-probability, non-random sample. Well, think about the people on Twitter. Um, you know, that seems like a huge challenge. But but there are people like like David Lazar at Northeastern University been really putting some effort into thinking about this problem of how do we get something like a real sample of of voters from Twitter. Mm-hmm. And so what he's been working on is taking voter files and matching those to individuals on Twitter and then mm-hmm. using that to estimate things like sentiment and, and you know, support or opposition to particular candidates and matching that back to the voter file that's so that you can adjust those 
those sentiments the same way you would responses in a survey. Sure. And the nice thing about it is you can get these real-time reactions uh, at, at a scale that's never, never going to be feasible. Even in an online survey, you, know, you can hopefully get, say, thousands of people to respond over the course of a few days. But, but when you've, you're talking about Twitter, you can get millions of people's responses. And it's really limited to your computing capacity as much as anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. So it gives an opportunity to really get a, a depth and volume of insight that just isn't available through other methods. So it's a really exciting area. Um, you know, this election cycle, the, the use of it has been, been somewhat limited, but I can only imagine what it's going to look like in 2020, um, assuming Twitter is still around by then. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Yeah. Um, so uh, the latest kind of hot thing in, in data science, speaking very broadly, is, uh, you know, some, some of the AI techniques that are becoming feasible now uh, around deep learning. Uh, do, you, do you see uh, the appearance of, of deep learning in uh, in politics at this point, or or perhaps see some possible applications for it? Well, uh, you know, I have a hard time doing that, but that might be my own failing because ultimately politics has really been at the forefront of adopting new technology. You know, when I came into the, the DNC in 2014, I inherited all the old code from the 2012 Obama campaign. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that was simply logistic regressions, you know, hmm. run, run in Stata. It was, <laughs> you know, oh, nothing that's, that's too so sophisticated. <laughs> Um, and by the time, you know, I, I left uh, earlier this year, we were running, uh, you know, large scale ensemble models in, in scikit-learn talking about moving towards Spark. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of progress just in, in a few, in a very short few years. And so who knows where it's going to be by 2020. But the, the way I look at it, though, is, is that, you know, I've tried to stay on top of the, the deep learning and, and neural networks developments. But, but ultimately, I think the problems that we're trying to to solve on the political side, it's less about how do we find the the best possible solution from a methodology standpoint. And really, it's about how do we find the right data? You mm-hmm. know, how do we ask the right questions and and find a way to put that into practice? There's a benefit to going from say logit models to random forest or, or gradient boosted trees or whatever. But I don't know how much further beyond that we really need to go compared to where we are with the data. We mm-hmm. we made a lot of progress in that same time frame in improving what data we were bringing to bear. And I think that's the area where we can really continue to add value going forward. You know, because ultimately we're not looking for magic. Mm-hmm. I think that's one of the big uh, misconceptions about the role of data in politics is I think people look at it and think we're doing some kind of weird psychological wizardry trying to manipulate the electorate. But at the end of the day, what we're really trying to do is, is a kind of simple optimization problem. We're just trying to figure out who to talk to, mm-hmm. uh, who to talk to, who to send mail to, who we want to show ads to. And, and in that regard, campaigns are the same as they've been for years and years and years. All we're trying to do is just make it a bit more efficient, you know, make sure that we are spending our, our resources the best way possible by reaching the people we, we're trying to reach and not wasting resources on those who are already decided one way or another. And so the gains are really incremental. And so trying to add some, you know, additional complexity in the models not sure how much value there is there simply because the problems we're solving at the end of the day are, are kind of foundational and the techniques of machine learning are really well suited to that. It's hard to see how we get too much of a boost by moving into something more complex like neural networks without losing some of that granularity of, of interpretability, even moving from something like logit models to, to you know, ensembles of decision trees. Sure. That takes away the interpretability quite a bit to begin with. I think moving beyond that, we run the risk of, of getting into some serious problems with overfitting, which is obviously a, 
a big concern in the the deep learning and, and neural networks area, you know, even more so in politics, what we don't want to do is predict really well what happened four years ago and screw up <laughs> what's going to happen this year. Right, and right, right. It's always a fear because we're trying to predict the future. Right. You know, I don't care how likely somebody was to turn out in the last election. I want to know how likely they are to turn out in the next one. Right. And so, you know, we've, we've done a really good job at building models that, that fit the data. If we try too hard, we run a huge risk of overfitting. And I think, you know, the better course of action is figuring out how do we make those models better, make them have better data going into them, how to get them updating in real time with response to new data that's coming in, rather mm-hmm. than have a, a long cycle of, you know, refresh. Running a batch process. Things. Right. You know, how do we get from batch to, to streaming? Mm-hmm. Um, that's going to be one of the biggest challenges. You know, I think there may be cases where where things like deep learning and neural networks are relevant. I imagine, you know, for example, going back to the social media question, um, maybe at some point there will be a reason we want to parse images. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, one of the things that is actually hugely valuable in in almost any predictive model of political preference is is ethnicity and race. Mm-hmm. Uh, and ethnicity, race, gender, you know, other basic demographics, uh, they're, they're not as sexy as consumer data, but they're a hell of a lot more powerful. And we make predictive models uh, based on the various data points we have. Not only, not only are we looking at, at things like, um, say, in the voting rights states where they're mandated to ask about uh, racial identification, but also, you know, places where individual voters aren't asked, we'll use things like uh, name patterns or mm-hmm. the, uh, the racial makeup of a person's census block. Hmm. Those sort of things to try to to come up with our best guess about about an individual's own demographics. I could see a case where you know going forward in 2020, if we've matched uh, individuals on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook or whatever comes next, and are able to pull down say profile photos mm-hmm. for individual mm-hmm. voters, you know I could see a case where we try to extrapolate from there other demographic characteristics. So I think where those new technologies come in, you know, it's less about figuring out how to do what we already do just a little bit better. It's about finding new applications. Uh, you know, similarly on social media, text analysis, sure. uh, that could be a huge thing, especially as we're able to think about, you know, how do we do better than just counting words and phrases, but move on to try to actually interpret what's being said. I think that could be a, a real great application to, to apply that to uh, learn something about individual voters. But fundamentally, as you point out, it's not about sort of doing this, uh, you know, dark magic to get people to vote a particular way. No, it's just no, about no. having uh, fundamentally, you know, a set of uh, political positions and policy views, and then disseminating the message in the most effective and efficient way possible. Absolutely. And then that's sort of my mantra, effective and efficient. You know, we're just really trying to, we're, we're trying to get some kind of hints. That's all it is. Mm-hmm. You know, we want to know just very in a very broad sense, what we're likely to to find out when we start talking to a person. Ultimately, you know, once we actually get somebody on the phone or talk to them at the door, everything we've predicted goes out the window compared to what they might actually tell us in person. You know, we're not learning any secrets. We're just coming up with an educated guess. And a lot of what we did too, it's, you know, less about this sort of, this obsessive focus on what are the voters thinking and feeling. And it's about really basic problems like, you know, who should we ask for money? Mm-hmm. It's actually mm-hmm. a very similar, you know, problem to to the private sector. One of the things that I did at the DNC was to help coordinate our direct mail and, and telemarketing campaigns, where we'd send anywhere from from one to five million pieces of direct mail a month. 
uh, I'm sure that, you know, a good chunk of, of the audience here has, has been on the receiving end of that. <laughs> and um, I'm sorry, I guess. But, uh, well, you know, <laughs> we put the right people in office. Yeah. I mean, yeah. You know, what we what we would do is we would look, uh, you know, across either our, our, we would look across our past donors as well as as well as the voter file more broadly and try to figure out, OK, you know, not only who are our donors and how do we find people who are like them? That's a sort of old school way. You know, instead, we, what we moved towards was, well, we don't actually care about finding people who look like our current donors. What we want to figure out is if we ask somebody for a donation, who's most likely to respond? And mm-hmm. that's something that is constantly evolving and changing. And, and we find some really interesting patterns, but also that's an area where just getting the data right is huge. You right. know, knowing somebody has supported one or more of our candidates, obviously it's a good sign that, uh, that they might be a good target, you know, for a fundraising appeal. So being able to bring all these different data sources together can be hugely valuable and in a way that it's very similar to the way that marketing works in the private sector. Terrific. My guest here has been Andrew Terrio. He's the author of Data and Democracy, How Political Data Science is Shaping the 2016 Election. That You can find that report on O'Reilly.com or by checking the link that's in the show notes accompanying this episode. Thank you so much for coming on, Andrew. Thanks for having me, John. It's been great talking to you. If listeners want to find you online, where should they look? Best place for listeners to find me and get in touch is on is probably on Twitter. Uh, my handle there is Terrio PhD. That's T H E R R I A U L T PhD. And uh, come find me on there. I'd love to love to talk more. Terrific. Thanks so much, Andrew. Thank you. Take care.